we are talking about the gospel at this Easter season, um, which is really something that we do every Sunday, in the same way that every Sunday is technically Resurrection Sunday. Um, this day has been set aside in the church year, or, or next Sunday has been set aside in the church year. It doesn't really coincide with Passover the way that it once did, and it really doesn't have any great significance in terms of, oh, this is Resurrection Sunday, because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. They stopped meeting in the synagogues on the Sabbath, on Saturday, and started getting together to worship as the people of God on the first day of the week, because it was early in the morning, on the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead and made all things new. And it was only an event as significant as the resurrection, and that's where we're headed in 1 Corinthians 15, that could actually affect that change of covenant and the change in the day of worship. So we are talking about the gospel. We started that a couple of weeks ago, looking at the gospel in Psalm 23, and then last week, talking about the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, this is the gospel that I preached and you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, unless you believed in vain. And we're going to continue talking about the gospel today. We're going to be talking about it next Sunday when we get to the resurrection sections of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But it's important for us to understand that as basic as the gospel is, it is also very profound. It's basic because depending on which translation you use, a simple search in an electronic Bible for the term gospel is going to return around 100 results. Only 10% of those will be within the four books that we normally call the gospels. That's important because sometimes we think, well, why don't we just focus on the gospel? Why don't you preach from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John more often? And not so much, maybe from some of the Old Testament books or even other books of the New Testament. But the gospel is a concept, it's an idea that just is pervasive throughout the New Testament and maybe the term is not used, although in the Septuagint it comes up a little bit, but it's also pervasive even in the Old Testament. 10% of the uses of that word we find within Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the rest are scattered across the remaining books of the New Testament. The term then is foundational to the Christian faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, to use the words of Jude. The idea of the gospel, the concept of this good message, is just woven throughout the fabric of the scriptures, which probably doesn't come as any great surprise to us, given that it is the mandate of the church to proclaim this gospel, to all creation, and the book, the Bible. The word of God is the means that we are to use to do that. The gospel is basic, and it is foundational to our faith. At the same time, we can speak of the gospel as being profound, because when we start looking into those many different references, we discover that there are various definitions to be found. I spoke last Sunday about the, the danger of getting into a reductionist kind of thought, where we think, well, the simple gospel is just Jesus died for you, you must believe and be saved, and everything else is kind of extraneous. 
That's the way some people have approached it. That is not the way that Scripture approaches it. In about a quarter of those 100 references across the New Testament, we, dis- we find the gospel described as the gospel of something, the good news of something, the, the good message of God, the good message of Jesus Christ, his son, the good message of Christ. One time it is listed as the gospel of salvation and twice as the gospel of peace, which are kind of roughly parallel. And again, depending on which translation you choose, it also comes up several times as the good message, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. But as I said last Sunday, in my opinion, by far the deepest reference to the gospel in all of the New Testament comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul wrote, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. And how's that for a summary statement of the gospel? We proclaim the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and we do it by proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ proclaimed in those words. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This ultimately is the goal of the gospel. Because as we noted last Lord's Day, borrowing a turn of phrase from pastor and author John Piper, God is the gospel. God himself. In Piper's words, what makes all the events of Good Friday and Easter and all the promises they secure good news is that they lead us to God. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And when we get there, it is God himself who will satisfy our souls forever. Sometimes we speculate on what will it be like in that day when the dead are raised incorruptible and we go into that eternal state with God and what will we do and what what kind of relationships will we have with the people that we have known and loved in this world and all sorts of questions like that. But what Piper says here, when we get there, it is God himself who will satisfy our souls forever. If we are looking forward to heaven for any other reason, we're kind of missing the point. Piper in another place asked the question, would you want to go to heaven if you knew that Jesus wasn't going to be there? Just kind of a trick question because it wouldn't be heaven if Jesus wasn't going to be there. There's a lot of people who are thinking about heaven not in terms of how God himself will satisfy us for eternity, but in terms of all the things that they hope are going to be part of that life carried over from this life. 
heard people say it wouldn't be heaven if they didn't have chocolate. I don't know. I really don't know. don't know who said that even. Um, maybe there will be. Who knows? But we're not going to heaven to be satisfied with the best chocolate the creation has ever known. We are going to heaven to be satisfied with God forever. God is the gospel. That is, and this is Piper still, he is what makes the good news good. Nothing less can make the gospel good news. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. Until people use the gospel to get to God, they use it wrongly. So it's in the depth of the fact that the gospel of the glory of Christ proclaimed in the message, Jesus Christ is Lord, it's there that we find meaning in some of the more simple expressions that we know as the gospel. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, last week, verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That would be the word of the gospel, the word of God. And today, especially verses 3 and 4, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So last week, very simple outline the gospel which I preach, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, unless you believed in vain. Again, a very, very simple outline this morning. Even more simple than that, basically just one point. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This day that we will potentially celebrate on Friday as a commemoration of the death of Christ, this table to which we come about once a month to remember and believe, none of that makes any difference whatsoever if Christ did not die for our sins. There are other models of the atonement. People talk about the moral exemplar model. Jesus died for us to show us what true love looks like in action. There are other models. I'm not even going to go into all of them. There's truth to a certain extent in some of them, right up to the point, as J.I. Packer once noted, that a lot of people who hold to those models seem to think that those models express everything, and they don't. There's truth in the one that I mentioned, the moral exemplar model, that Jesus, in dying for us on the cross, shows the lengths to which true love is willing to go. That's true. But it doesn't make any difference at all if Christ did not die for our sins according to the scriptures. 
And that idea that we might call penal substitutionary atonement again is woven through the fabric of New Testament scripture as the Apostle Peter was quoted in that bit from John Piper. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we have the end of the gospel, that he might bring us to God. We have the means that he used. He suffered for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. And throughout my life, this simple statement of the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures has been the sine qua non, the absolutely indispensable and essential fact of the gospel. I find myself blown away to be living in a time when there are people who call themselves Christians who questioned that. Just completely blown away. I am a stranger in a strange land. Because for almost 60 years now, I have known that you could not preach the gospel. You could not believe the gospel. You could not stand in the gospel. And you could not be saved by the gospel without coming face to face with this simple fact. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Only God knows how many sermons, how many I have personally heard, never mind how many have been preached in the history of the Christian church. Only God knows how many were built around this most essential expression. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Earlier in the same book in which Paul speaks of the gospel of the glory of Christ, he had written, we implore you, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is vicarious atonement. That is penal substitutionary atonement. As we have seen, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If you are interacting with other people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I just don't think that that's really the point. We'll have a nice, polite, kind controversy with those people. Because that is the point. Of course, we are Christians who have gathered to worship as the church of Jesus Christ, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So it would seem that these things, the doctrine that we have defined as penal substitutionary atonement, could almost go without saying. Or at least that we would not need to spend an entire Lord's Day considering these ten simple words. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But we cannot. We have to take the time. We have to do the work because there are popular so-called pastors and theologians out there 
who have defined this idea that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures as nothing less than, and I, and I quote, cosmic child abuse. The idea that this penal substitutionary atonement was an import from pagan religion where a god wanted to vent his wrath and so he vented it on his own son rather than on the world has been called cosmic child abuse. One author wrote the following, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. That author's words, not mine. But that's how people today are coming to think of this concept. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Deeper than that, the author goes on to say, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. Really? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures stands as a total contradiction to the statement God is love. For 2,000 years we have proclaimed for God so loved the world. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Not only does the idea on the screen that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures not contradict the idea that God is love, it is the very essence of that statement. This is how God showed his love for us, for his people. He sent his son to die for our sins. Still another popular author, very popular, Lots of books, best-selling author. Made light of the idea of the atonement with the statement, it seems to mean that God is less grumpy because of Jesus. And I could name names. That one was Rob Bell, by the way. And there are some others out there that are teaching along those same lines. But there's no point. Because these teachers come and go. Rob Bell sold a ton of books a while back because people thought he was still an evangelical. And in those books, he undermined the faith that he once proclaimed, and then when evangelicals figured out, this guy's not an evangelical, he's not preaching the gospel, his books don't sell quite as well anymore, because the world has never believed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, so they don't care about a Christian pastor who says, that's not the gospel. That wasn't the point. But I could list name after name and book after book and there wouldn't be any point because the books come and go, the authors come and go. Sadly, the damage that these attacks on the gospel don't do does not just go away. And besides, closer to home, much, much closer to home. Overture 12, addressed to the Synod that never happened in 2020 and will not happen again in 2021, asks Synod to, quote, declare denials of penal substitutionary atonement as heresy, denials 
of penal substitution, substitutionary atonement are heresy, and instruct classes to guard the reformed confessional teaching of the cross. It makes me sad that Classis Iliana felt that that overture needed to be written, but they believed that it had to be. And once again, we might have hoped that it would have gone without saying, but it doesn't. I was tempted to read some excerpts from the sermons in which an ordained minister in the CRC preached directly contrary to the scriptures and to the confessions on this matter. In words that directly contradicted what the Bible says and what our confession of faith says the Bible means, but I'm not going to read it because as I said a moment ago, the damage being done by these attacks goes on and on. But specific authors, podcasters, and even pastors come and go. So there's just no way that I could give you a comprehensive guide to all of the error that is out there. Just because you turn on a podcast and it says this is a Christian podcast, if it says it's a Christian podcast, but it is not proclaiming that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, don't believe them. I could go on and on giving a list of all the stuff that's out there that does just that. But that wouldn't accomplish anything. I think instead we simply need to get it clear in our minds that this is the gospel. This is the good message. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin. Jesus became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Some people at this time of the year turn to the blow the dust off the DVD the, the Passion of the Christ and watch it and it's a horrible thing and, and I don't think there's necessarily anything terrible except that it seems to place all of the emphasis on what Christ was doing when he suffered on the cross on the physical suffering which was by far the smallest part. We confess in the Apostles' Creed he descended into hell and in the Heidelberg Catechism, we say, on the cross especially, but all through his life, Jesus endured the torments of hell for us so that we would not have to. More importantly, he who was the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was made Sin for you, for me, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This again, according to the scriptures, according to the gospel, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints which we have received, in which we stand and by which we are being saved. If we hold fast to the teaching of God's word, this is not a twisted version of events. The very idea that somebody would call it that is kind of sick and twisted. 
This is not a twisted version of events, morally dubious and a huge barrier to the faith. This is nothing less than the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. If indeed you have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the gospel. So we preach, and so you believed. And do not make any mistake, this is a gospel issue. It's true that not everything in Scripture is equally clear, although I think most things are clear enough to make most of us pretty uncomfortable with the truth that we confront there about ourselves. But some things have been considered adiaphora, disputable matters, matters that are open to a certain amount of discussion. That's true, but this, this is clear. This is absolute. Sometimes the analogy that comes to my mind is that with some of these issues, we are fighting fires 20 stories above the ground. Having said that, he's not here at the moment, but we have a fireman in our congregation. And while I have not spoken to him about this directly, I am relatively certain that he would tell you that if you try to ignore a fire that is 20 stories above the ground because you are sitting in an office at ground level, eventually you are going to have a problem there too. But sometimes it seems like these things are kind of distant and maybe we don't have to focus on them so much. But this attack on penal substitutionary atonement, this is like one of those giant machines that they used to dig the channel underneath the English Channel. Just huge machines that churned up rocks and earth and anything that was in their path. And this machine is aimed at the foundation of the building. This is a bedrock issue. This is a question that undermines everything from which there is no retreat and no surrender and on which there can be no compromise. In Galatians chapter 2, we read of an encounter between the two great apostles of the first century church, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter whose ministry was mostly to the Jews. You would think, what a wonderful occasion. It's like a Bible conference. It's like getting R.C. Sproul and John Piper together in the same room, right? The apostle of the Jews, the apostle to the Gentiles. But of that encounter, Paul wrote, but when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Remember, this is Paul talking about Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
Now to us, this might seem like a little fire in a trash can, 20 or 30 stories up. But Paul recognized where that was going to lead. He saw in this that, quote, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that the way that they were behaving, in fact, reflected, to use Paul's own words from Galatians chapter 1, a different gospel, a gospel contrary to the one that he had preached to them and that they had received. And as he said in that context, Galatians 2 verse 8, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed. And the word is strong. Let him be damned. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's why Paul opposed Peter to his face. That's why in the particular issue, at least, Peter stood condemned at that moment. Incidentally, and this is just free information of the 100 or so times that the word gospel is used in the New Testament, over 10%, 13 times, that word occurs in the six shortish chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's almost exactly the same number of times that the word appears in all four of the much longer books that we overtly identify as Gospels. Do you want a book of the New Testament that talks about the Gospel? Go to Galatians. And you want to know how important Paul thinks this is? Well, if anyone preaches anything else, let him be accursed, even if it's the Apostle Peter. I would oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. But to get back to the point, when the gospel is at stake, there can be no compromise. None. Why? Well, lots of reasons. But to come back to our text in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Incidentally, he received it by studying at the feet of Gamaliel, a Jewish rabbi who taught Paul the scriptures. When Paul was saved, he didn't receive the gospel as kind of a supernaturally imparted body of truth from God's mouth to his head. Paul had been trained in the scriptures. What we know of rabbinic training in those days, Paul would have had the entire Old Testament memorized word for word along with a whole bunch of other stuff. He knew the Bible. And so when the Holy Spirit converted him, when Christ came to him, in the context of that Damascus Road experience and what followed after, it wasn't Christ saying, okay, Paul, you're a blank slate. You don't know anything. So let me teach you. It was the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, Paul, all that stuff that you've packed into your head for all of these years, let me show you what it really means. That was me speaking. That was me being talked about in all of those scriptures. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If we ask what scriptures, well, the scriptures that Paul would have known. 
We believe that 1 Corinthians was one of the first books of the New Testament written, that it predates any of the four Gospels. So when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, he's not talking about according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Aren't those wonderful books? He's talking about the books of Moses, the books of the prophets. He's talking about the Psalms. He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. He's talking about the same Scriptures, remember, on the road to Emmaus? Those disciples who didn't recognize Jesus, and Jesus came along, and you know, you'd think he could just sort of, hey, it's me. And they'd say, whoa, isn't that nice? Jesus is back. But he doesn't do that. He lets that sort of murkiness about who he is remain, and then he walks with them along the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he opens to them the scriptures, and he begins with Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he walks them through the Old Testament and he shows them how those scriptures revealed the gospel. What God was going to do to truly save his people. There's much more that could be said about it, but it's enough to understand that Paul anchors the atonement made by Christ for our sin into the very word of God. And while it is often belittled by those who don't want us to take that word seriously, there is very much the attitude reflected in that old statement. I used to see it as a bumper sticker. I remember it's the late 60s or the early 70s. You would see it on the back of people's cars down in the States. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And I remember actually... Later on in the late 70s, when I was working at a Christian bookstore, we sold one that said, God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not, which is true. And that's what Paul is saying in accordance with the scriptures. Further note that verse 4, which we will consider more next Sunday, if the Lord is willing. In that verse, Paul makes the same argument for the resurrection of Christ. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The central truth, as some have claimed, to all of our Christian faith also rests upon the foundation of the very words of God. He was raised up according to the scriptures. This is important because Paul wrote in verses 14 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ did not physically raise, was not physically raised up to walk out of that tomb, if it was some sort of a spiritual thing or whatever. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even being found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, we don't have a lovely moral teacher like Gandhi or the Buddha or any other human so-called faith leader in history. 
if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if we have the kind of faith that says, well, Christianity is good for what it teaches us about ourselves and how it teaches us to be kind to others and to do good works and to enjoy the sunshine. <laughs> if in Christ we have hope in this life only, the Apostle Paul writes, we are of all people most to be pitied. And the same scriptures that testify to the resurrection of Christ without which our faith is empty and useless testify to the fact that Christ died for our sins. And you don't get to have one without the other. We don't get to come back here next Sunday and celebrate Christ's resurrection if we reject the atonement that he made for us if we claim that the fact that God poured our sin onto his son and let him suffer the torments of hell for us and our salvation, if we think that is twisted or morally dubious, we don't get to come back and celebrate the resurrection either. Because apart from Christ's death in our place and because of our sin, his resurrection would just be an odd historical curiosity even if we believed it to be true. If he did not die for us, it does not matter whether or not he was raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and the scriptures are abundantly clear. He who was raised for our justification was first delivered up for our trespasses it was our sin it was my sin and your sin that put Jesus onto that cross that God poured into the one who had been the perfect very God of very God light of light and he became sin for you that's the love of God. He was raised for our justification. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You've heard me say it a few times lately. What can wash away my sin? Your sin, our sin. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is old-fashioned. Some people think it's really gross. We come to church and we sing hymns that talk about the blood of Christ washing away our sins. That's just, ew, how icky. It's not very popular today as a sentiment, never mind as a song. There's not too many songs being written these days to get into that level of detail on the atonement, but this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word. And so we shall, God helping us, as Martin Luther said, amen. Let's pray.
Father, let the good message of your glory in the face of Christ shine through. That, Father, abhorring our sin, we would turn to the one person who can cleanse us and make us new and give us life. That abhorring our sin, we wouldn't be content to live with the shame and the guilt, but rather to repent and turn to the one who gives light and life and righteousness, who gives us an eternity in which you yourself become our delight forever and ever. God, let the gospel shine through into our hearts that we may walk in that light and that we may proclaim this message of salvation to the people around us, wherever we may go in this week and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.